to Living with Climate Change. This is the first interview uh, of my show, and I'm pleased to have the renowned Dr. Guy McPherson join me for a two-part interview. Uh, let me introduce you to him. Uh, Dr. Guy McPherson is internationally recognized uh, speaker, award-winning scientist, and the world's leading authority on abrupt climate change leading to near-term extinction. His public works include more than a dozen books and hundreds of scholarly articles. Dr. McPherson has been featured on TV and radio and several documentary films. His website is called Nature Bats Last. And let's look at a few of his books right now. From 2011, Walking Away from Empire, A Personal Journey. From 2013, Going Dark. And from this year, 2019, Only Love Remains, Dancing at the Edge of Extinction. Now, Dr. McPherson is somewhat of a controversial figure because uh, he believes that we could be facing near-term extinction within 10 years and that there probably is nothing that can stop this. Uh, so this first part of the interview, we will talk about the scientific uh, aspects of abrupt climate change. And on the second part, it will be the human aspects of climate change. Uh, now for this interview, I've tried to make the interview interesting uh, by addressing some of the uncertainties in the science of climate change. For instance, uh, the accuracy of the climate models in predicting the resonance time in uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, um, the uncertainty of global dimming, and Dr. McPherson's conclusion uh, that we are undoubtedly, undeniably facing human near-term extinction, and the possibility of a global effort to deploy geoengineering worldwide uh, to stop the devastating ecological effects that may come in the future. So let's get right to the interview. Uh, I apologize for the quality of the interview. It was uh, done within the Skype software, but the content is very good. So let's get to it. Uh, thank you. Start now. Uh, I'll quickly introduce my first guest, uh, Dr. Guy McPherson. Professor Emeritus at University of Arizona, and he's an author. Uh, would you like to say hello, Guy? Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Uh, thank you. I'm thrilled to have you. Um, so, Guy is known as the world's leading authority of climate change, leading to near-term extinction, and he's a cons conservationist biologist. Right, and, that's correct. Uh, yes. So that so that gives him a that must be why he is uh, uh, knows about this extinction uh, part of 
the ecology. And it's, it's, that's about protecting natural resources. He knows all about the climate and it's very multidisciplinary, just like environmental science. And I think it, one of the most interesting figures in uh, climate change communicators that we have out there, and he's from all the interviews I've seen, he's a very nice guy and he's honest and ethical and moral. And I'm just thrilled to have him on my show as the first, uh, my first guest. Uh, you can find more about him at guymcpherson.com, where his, uh, his website is called Nature Bats Last, and that's from American Baseball, right? The last that's team right. that bats last always has the advantage. So some people who don't know about American baseball might not understand the reference. Yeah, I don't think they they think about the bats of, you know, the, the animals, the, the bird right. bat. And they get, they get confused. That a lot. They, they don't, that's what I thought. Uh, and he's an author and he's got many books that we will talk about um, later on in the show. Uh, I guess I would like to say... Um, I was going to say just about my view of the future uh, is a little bit different uh, than guys. I'm a bit more optimistic about it. And uh, I've done a couple shows on this and I've actually it kind of changed my view on it after I pondered this, but I'm kind of a mystic and uh, I'm going to, I'm going to quote Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. And the first line of that, um, and it goes, the Tao that uh, can be named is not the eternal Tao. And the Tao, as we know, can be God or nature, the cosmos, all these things. So I, I just, I'm saying that because I, I think that we maybe don't know really what's going to happen in the future. And that's, I'm based that on, partly on, uh, climate models and we don't know i i think that we maybe don't quite understand the the carbon cycle and how co2 is going to react when we put all this into the atmosphere but i'm sure that uh, uh dr mcpherson is going to uh, tell me otherwise <laughs> but i completely adhere to the precautionary principle that we are to do all we can to reverse what we've done with emissions and, and everything else. So given that, uh, the structure of the show, that first half is going to be about the scientific aspects of climate change. And then the second half, we're going to talk about the human aspects and the spiritual aspects and, and all these things that that come into play with climate change in people's lives. So uh, the first, and so the first, uh, the scientific part, I want to talk about first, just, you know, we have to introduce climate change a little bit. And then I want to talk about this global dimming. And then maybe we're going to talk a little bit about geoengineering and then the extinction, the human extinction part of it. And then uh, the second half, uh, we'll talk about 
the human aspects. I'll go over that in a minute. So uh, um, I don't want to keep talking too much, but uh, I was going to go over just kind of the global warming summary because maybe you're tired of repeating it all the time. <laughs> but let me just go over some of the things that we are facing that why climate change is a, is a, is a big deal. Uh, obviously, we have greenhouse gas concentrations that have increased uh, from 280 parts per million that we've had for thousands of years. And it's up now, I don't know, 410 maybe parts per million. We have methane concentrations that have increased. And we also probably have a lot of CFCs and HCFCs that are in the atmosphere also. And these are greenhouse gases and they absolutely will warm the planet in some way. Um, and this is leading, and so this is going to increase the temperature of the earth so abruptly, we think, and it already kind of is, um, to where plants and animals simply can't adapt. And so ecosystems will be destroyed uh, that we depend on for our livelihoods, for food and everything else. There'll be rising temperatures that will create weather patterns that may be much more extreme, uh, extreme weather events that will cause social problems of, of climate refugees and migrations. Uh, there could be uh, major food crops failing in, in the major uh, countries of America, Russia, China, Brazil, where all this food is grown for uh, the whole world. Uh, the oceans are almost dying, you could say. We are in the sixth mass extinction from human development and industrialized civilizations. Uh, we could have positive feedbacks that we don't know how, what they'll do. Um, we have the poles of, that are the, the air conditioning of the planet are, are melting faster than the rest of the world, lowering the albedo. We have our the lungs of the earth, the Amazon rainforest is being deforested uh, for to, put, to, to, to be used to grow food, to grow beef for, Amer for uh, human beings uh, food supply. And so that's just a few, and there's probably very many more, but those are quite major problems from human development. And uh, so now I want to turn over to the guy, the guest, and kind of ask you, where are we now? And I hope that we can talk about uh, these things globally, because I, I've noticed that a lot of... Uh, the conversations that in, that in America, they're very just, they, they don't think of things globally that much, but I do because I've been living abroad. And uh, I'm actually quite concerned about the developing world. Uh, that's really my biggest concern. But so, and I want to, also I want to talk about uh, that, and this might be a little challenging kind of a, a question to you that, that about the projections that you've made in the past, have they have they come to be or not? 
And what about the IC, IPCC projections? And, and I'm referring to the Blue Ocean event, food, cup, fruit, uh, food crop failure, and the methane bomb, that's called. So I don't know, just uh, kind of where are we at today? Yeah, well, you gave such a negative and compelling overview that maybe I don't have to say anything. <laughs> yes, we're in extremely dire straits. As you indicated, when we began the Industrial Revolution, we had about 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We had about 750 parts per billion of methane in the atmosphere. Currently, we're over 410 parts per million carbon dioxide. I suspect we'll never see 410 parts per million again. The temperature associated with the current level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is locked in for at least the next thousand years, according to a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences from February of 2009. Methane is more than 100 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And it, although it's measured in parts per billion, it is a very strong greenhouse gas. And we're now approaching 2,000 parts per billion of methane in the atmosphere, which is two parts per million. In addition, we're seeing methane levels rise exponentially in the atmosphere, undoubtedly as a result of contributions from the permafrost, which is rapidly melting and releasing pressurized methane and pressurized CO2 into the atmosphere. And also, there's the methane from the relatively shallow seabed of the Arctic Ocean. As the Arctic warms, the methane is released at an increasing rate. So, James Hansen, the leading climate scientist in the United States at the time, and for another 25 years or so, in 1988 testified before Congress and pointed out that 350 parts per million was dangerous. That was the upper limit that we could not cross in terms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That was 350 parts per million. We're at 410 now. I'm sorry, we're at slightly more than 410. I doubt we ever see 410 again. 200, 280 was where we, where industrial civilization came onto the stage. Hansen pointed out that 320 was probably a reasonably safe number. And for 320 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was a long, long time ago, and it is far behind us. In addition, we've triggered, oh, five or six dozen self-reinforcing feedback loops that I describe at GuyMcPherson.com under a tab called Climate Change Summary and Update. And <clears throat> we also now know about the impact of global dimming or the aerosol masking effect, which points to this as being a severe predicament, not a problem. We can continue industrial activity, which obviously adds carbon dioxide, methane, high, or water vapor, and 40 other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, or we can turn off the switch of industrial civilization and then the sulfates all fall out of the sky. The aerosols associated with the aerosol masking effect all fall out of the sky in somewhere around the neighborhood of six weeks. And then the planet warms up even faster than we're warming it up through industrial civilization. So this is a classic damned if you do, 
damned if you don't situation. Global Deming, which was not reported in the referee journal literature until December of 2011 in a paper by Hansen and colleagues, James Hansen and colleagues, has come to be known as the, uh, again, the damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario by which we ensure our demise by heating the planet even faster than we are right now if we somehow manage to turn off the switch of industrial civilization. So it's a dire predicament. There appears to be no way out because a paper by Levy and colleagues in early 2013 indicated that as little as a 35% reduction in industrial activity could drive a one degree Celsius global average temperature rise. And the rate of that change in six weeks or so would be so fast, would be so rapid that no species could keep up. So plants couldn't keep up. Trees are not going to move in light of a 1C global average temperature rise in six weeks. That's faster than a growing season. That's faster than any organism could possibly keep up. So if, if we have even a relatively minor reduction in industrial activity that could drive a rapid rise in global average temperature that outstrips the ability of other organisms and therefore us to keep up with that rate of change. It's not that I'm happy about this. I'm frequently accused of being gleeful about the phenomenon known as abrupt climate change, but I'm not because I'm actually quite pleased with my life and I would like to have it continue for a while longer. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, and, and that, you know, that's just an overview. There's so, we've had so many warnings along the way, going back to 1847 with American naturalist and ambassador George Perkins Marsh, and then referee journal literature coming into play in the late 1800s. And then in 1989, it was the director of the New York office of the United Nations Environment Program, Noel Brown, who in 1989 said, we have 10 years to, to fix the carbon dioxide problem. And the warnings just keep coming and they keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And among the two most recent ones are the IPCC report from October of last year, indicating we have until 2030 to fix the mess. A very profound change from their usual, we have until 2100 to fix anything. Now they say suddenly we have until 2030. And then the Secretary General of the United Nations, which oversees the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, concludes shortly thereafter, no, actually a month before that, he concluded, Antonio Guterres concluded that we have until 2020. We have until 2020 to fix this mess. Well, that's not very long from now, is it? That's a few months from now. And as nearly as I can tell, the only thing we can do that will significantly alter the global average temperature on Earth between now and 2020 is to reduce industrial activity, which will drive the temperature up even faster. So we appear to be in the midst of abrupt, irreversible climate change, the, the likes of which has happened five times before in the history of the planet and driven the five previous mass extinctions. So uh, what are we, what, 0.8 C above 1850? Is that... The global average. You know, that's, you know that's that's the that's what you read from 
corporate media, from the governments, and by paid climate scientists. But we are at least 1.73 above the 1750 baseline. Okay. The 1750 baseline is conservative. That's when we say the Industrial Revolution began, but really civilizations began before that. When Michael Mann was an honest climate scientist, he pointed out that we needed to go back to the 1400s. That should be the baseline. The 1850 is not a proper baseline. 1750 is as close as we're going to get because that's when we have good measurements beginning. If we start with 1750, according to an analysis, April 2nd, we have warmed 1.73 C above that 1750 baseline. 1.73. And all we read these days is the baseline is starting in... 1950, 1951 to 1980, 1980 to 2010. I read all these reports that are clearly shifting the baseline forward from the 1750 baseline. Between 1750 and 1850, there was about a 0.2 degree Celsius global average temperature rise. So that suggests that we're at at least one and a half degrees above the 1850 so-called baseline. Uh, one and a half degrees. Okay. Uh, but we're so at least what, one what and three quarters. At this point, we're at least one and three quarters above the 1750 baseline. And 1. it was just it was just announced by a bunch of government agencies that we're in the midst of an El Nino Southern Oscillation. What happens during an El Nino? The oceans give up a lot of their heat. It spills over onto land. So places like Southeast Asia are about to get a lot warmer. So how have the ecosystems reacted from this rise from since 1750 to now? Because well, it, I think most people would think that nothing's happened or that's not it's not threatening yet. We have food, everybody's happy, there's no uh, yet we are told we're in the sixth mass extinction and obviously I think you know, we know about insects uh, going extinct massively. And, and But th back to that question, what, like, what are we seeing? Uh, well, if you live in the central part of the United States, you know what's happening. There's a hurricane in the central United States. A hurricane dumping so much water that the, the state in the continental United States that has the most rivers of any state in the continental United States, Nebraska, uh, something like 76,000 miles of river, every single one of them is above flood stage right now. And people are calling it a hurricane and it's over the center in the Great Plains of the United States. It has utterly destroyed grain crops that were stored because of a tariff with other nations, mostly China, imposed by the United States. The farmers in the Midwestern United States have stored a bunch of their grains and soybeans. And so they were in silos and now they're all flooded. Now they're all destroyed. So that was literally billions of dollars worth of stored food that has been destroyed by massive rainfall in the central portion of the United States. So I guarantee you that I guarantee you that the farmers in the central part of the United States know about climate change. But uh, uh, kind of my question was, how are the plants 
adapting and the right. animals, insects, all that. So, I mean, that's right. a lot, that's a big change in temperature. Um, and that's what I want to get at is have what like, concerning crop yields mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. things like that. I know, uh, zones are moving north, uh, but is it, is it very serious? Uh, I'm not talking about severe weather events and flooding right. and stuff like that. Right. And, okay. Uh, so, so thank you, you for me getting me back on track. I have okay. a propensity <laughs> for wandering. Um, the United States Department of Agriculture must be about five years ago now for the first time ever shifted the growing zones, shifted their 10 growing zones north in light of the fact that temperatures have increased in North America. That's a very significant event taken on, half of, on behalf of the government. In addition, we've all heard about the insect Armageddon that has affected and it was initially reported for nature preserves in Germany and more recently in Puerto Rico. So here we have the Eastern and Western hemispheres. Insects are being directly impacted both in nature preserves and in other areas, less wild areas, we'll say. And so that's a big deal because as the insects go, we go. It's the insects who do all the heavy lifting when it comes to decomposition of organic matter into healthy soil. It's the insects that do all the work of filtering the water so that we have potable water to drink. And it's the insects that do much of the pollinating for the things that we eat and so on. But the the interesting action from a human perspective involves animals more than plants. So even though plants are overwhelmingly responsible for the majority of the biomass on planet Earth, still the papers that get the most attention are the ones that, that focus on species that look more like us. So we go back to, I believe it was 2013. There's a paper in the peer-reviewed journal literature pointing out that the projected rate of change, and this was using the IPCC-style projections for gradual rate of change up till 2100, outstripped the ability of vertebrates to keep up by a factor of 10,000 times were vertebrates. More recently, a paper in 2018 indicates that mammals are lagging behind ecosystem change and it will take, even if we, if we somehow stop the warming right now and level it off, and there's no known way to do that, by the way, but even if we do, it will take several million years for mammals to adapt to the, the situation as it's occurring now. We're vertebrates, we're mammals. So neither of those peer-reviewed journal articles indicate good news as far as we're concerned. And, you know, they're just a reflection. The vertebrates and the mammals, much less the vertebrate mammals, are just reflecting what's going on in what we call the lower forms of life in the ecosystem. What happens to plants happens to insects. There's a leg. What happens to insects happens to vertebrates. There's a leg. What happens to insects happens to mammals. There's a leg. So it's clearly catching up with us. And when you have the inability of vertebrates to keep up 
by a projected 10,000 times, 10,000 times faster than we can keep up, that doesn't bode well for humans or any other vertebrates on the planet. And then, you know, I want to point to the to a relatively recent journal paper that came out on November 13, 2018, and the title includes Coextinctions. Coextinctions annihilate planetary life during extreme environmental change. And by extreme environmental change, in this case, they're pointing to a five or six degree Celsius global average temperature rise over the conventional up until 2100 time frame. And the press release that came out coincident with that paper says as the lead, the extinction in plant and animal species from extreme climate change could lead to a domino effect that annihilates all life on Earth. All life on Earth, that's, that certainly includes us, I would think. I mean, some people are more alive than others. But when we're talking about all life on Earth, we're not just talking about insects. We're not just talking about plants. We're not just talking about abstract vertebrates. We're not just talking about mammals in the abstract. All life on Earth means us, too. A projection by Sam Carana conducted in the middle of 2016 indicates that we will experience far greater than 5 or 6 degrees Celsius global average temperature rise by 2026. He recently updated that tacked on a new feedback that was that was discovered relatively recently added eight degrees celsius to that so he projects us headed towards 18 degrees celsius above the 1750 baseline the highest temperature ever recorded on earth by far in the last two billion years and that by 2026 there's no way humans survive that or any other vertebrates for that matter now that's that's a, a couple of studies. Uh, there must be other studies that would not say that, right? Oh, yes. Oh, I mean, yes. We're yeah. talking like, you're talking like seven years that we're going to have a five to eight degree increase, global inter, uh Right. And so that I... Would have to be, there would have to be lots of feedback. I mean, it's going to start happening quickly. Uh, right. Well, and some of these fed feedbacks happen very quickly. For example, water vapor is the most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere by volume, accounting for more than 90% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by volume. And the feedback between water vapor in the upper troposphere and warming of the planet, that equilibrium is reached in a matter of days. That's a fast feedback. The melting of the arctic ice has already caused the polar vortex has caused the uh, circulation patterns associated with the northern hemisphere to go absolutely crazy and we're recently seeing the intersecting the overlapping of the northern and the southern jet streams which according to the washington post just a few years ago was impossible they did a major hit piece on a, a <clears throat> a guy named Paul Beckwith at Ottawa and and said that, that it's impossible for that to happen. Well, now we have the evidence and it has, has clearly happened within the last couple of years. So, yes, you'll find a lot of papers that say we don't know anything 
or that project to 2100, which is the standard approach used by the IPCC, until quite recently. And with that October report, in October of last year, suddenly the IPCC moves their projections forward 70 years from 2100 to 2030. And a month, be approximately a month before that, the Secretary General of the United Nations says we have, we have until 2020. And the refereed journal literature is catching up, but the process by which the peer-reviewed literature is created and published is so utterly conservative that it takes a long time for papers like Coextinctions Annihilate Planetary Life in scientific reports. It takes a while for those things to show up because the process is so unbelievably conservative. And I've published a lot of refereed journal papers, a lot of peer-reviewed journal papers. It's a long time from, from the time you have an idea, begin collecting data, submit the paper, get it re reviewed by your peers. It's a long time from the time of the initial idea until the publication, sometimes five or five to eight years, and almost always at least two years. Now, I think that the IPCC report, I think that 2030 is saying that we have that much time to start to reduce emissions, right? That's right. I don't think we have, until, that, we have until then to make major changes. Yes. Yeah. And that's possible. Um, and, oh, it's, so I want to move I, on, but uh, go ahead. I'd give it a 100% chance. I'd give it a 100% chance that there will be no human emissions by 2030, because I don't think there will be a human being on the Earth in 2030. But that's not going to fix anything. That's just going to kick in the aerosol masking effect and warm the planet even faster. And that's that's an element that the IPCC has not acknowledged since their third assessment. They've completely ignored the literature on global dimming or the aerosol masking effect okay, since their third assessment. Let's go on to global dimming. Uh, I want to... Uh, I'm just going to, before we move on, uh, I wanted something about CO2 that I kind of researched in the, that from, I believe that we don't really know the residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's a complex system and the, the temperatures ray, rise logarithmically, right? It's not a, a linear increase of temperature so that is something those factors i just think make the models not absolutely sure that's right, and this I'm is saying. I, i'm just saying that there are levels of, of error you know and I, I i don't know i just think that from my education that 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 what is happening in the atmosphere is is quite complex and i i don't know that these models have the ability to predict the future do you uh, i mean you must agree with that a little bit i don't sure we cannot predict the future with great accuracy and not only that the this is one of the reasons i don't rely much on models I, I much prefer empirical data, and I'm an empiricist based on all of my own research. For more than 20 years, I conducted field research mm -hmm. on actual living organisms. Okay. The models have 
every model so far when it comes to climate change has been proven conservative, far too conservative to be useful in predicting what's going on. And we do know things. You know, we actually know the mechanism by which carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere. And you can do an experiment in, a, in a, an aquarium to demonstrate to yourself how it actually works. Yeah. So some of this stuff is not, you can just open a can of soda as an example. It's got a bunch of carbon dioxide and that's what makes it fizzy. And if you leave it open, it equilibrates with the atmosphere. And in three or four hours, there's no carbon dioxide left in that soda and it tastes really flat. It's not fizzy anymore. So we know a lot about how these systems work from the physical perspective. But the, that's, uh, those, I still think that, that the huge atmosphere and the, uh, it's a bit more complex than uh, those uh, you know, tests. Uh, are the things we don't know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Have we thrown the precautionary principle to the wind? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I mean, I'm just you know, trying, I'm be, trying to gain, a, I'm just trying to get a little hope uh, that, you know. <laughs> I don't, that I don't think we because, should. And I'll tell you why. I think sometimes we don't know what the future's, what is going to happen in the future. And I'm kind of, like I said, a mystic, but. Uh, of course, I, I just in our own lives in everything. I, I just think that I think science. You know that science has been wrong uh, a lot, you know, throughout the ages. Um, anyway, that's let's. Uh, okay, so that's climate change. Now let's go, let's talk a little bit about global dimming. Now I, I'm just going to raise some questions uh, that I because I read a paper by Martin Wilde, you know that, you know him? No. Uh, it was in the uh, Journal of Geological, uh, Geophysical Research. Oh, was was this a multi-authored paper from Shakova's group? I don't think so, it was Martin Wilde. It's called Global Dimming and Brightening a Review. I have not read it. So I'll just, uh, I didn't read, I read as much as I could, you know, it's 36 pages and you know how those papers are, are quite hard to read. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know that mean? very well. I mean, those, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're, uh, it takes a long time to read those, uh, I know from graduate school. And a normal person can't even read them. Um, but what I kind of got away from, out of this was that his, he was kind of saying that global dimming is not, it's kind of local dimming and that the atmospheric aerosols are not, I, I don't think they're equally mixed in the atmosphere. So that leaves some uncertainties. Uh, and I think that they had, they had observed brightening and dimming in, different localized parts of the world. And that could even actually cancel each other out. Um, so the temperature increase might not be what we think if we did stop all aerosol, you know, from industrialized civilization. Um, Yeah, and I think they had decadal differences that they'd measured and uh, over different areas. 
And right. so again, I'm just I'm just think this is from a paper, and it seemed. Uh, I, I just I'm saying after reading that I can't I don't think that we should say we cannot do anything we cannot uh, stop emitting aerosols or it'll be worse. I don't think that that's a reason to not try to reduce our emissions and you know save the planet. Well, <laughs> because if we can. I just don't think that's we can rely and say from this global dimming, it's we should not do anything. But, Let uh, me provide some context that okay. e either is left out in the paper or that you're not providing in such a short overview. Yeah. So absolutely, the effects are local to begin with, as they are with emissions. When carbon dioxide is emitted, when methane is emitted, the warming occurs in that area locally and then in that region then and then expanding out into the entire earth's atmosphere so for example there was a heat wave in the early 2000s in france that some people attributed to and i think reasonably so attributed to transferring from coal-fired power plants to nuclear power they made that France made this transition in a very short period of time, and it was something like 70,000 people died in the heat wave the following summer. So that's a local impact because the atmosphere does not mix instantly. However, within about a year, it's completely mixed. So oh. just because you find a place that is locally dimmed doesn't mean it's going to remain locally dimmed. It takes a while for the atmosphere to become fully mixed. But... Not long from now, your exhalation, some, some of the molecules in your exhalation will become part of my inhalation. And we've known this since Aristotle's time. So, yes, there are areas that it's that the dimming is exacerbated, that the so-called brightening is exacerbated, but those won't last long. As with, you know... People routinely say that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, parroting that line about Las Vegas. And that's right, although the warming that is occurring right now in the Arctic is impacting the Arctic and the Arctic's ecosystems far greater than it's impacting the rest of the planet. But once we lose the Arctic ice, not long after that, and I'm not going to, it's certainly not that day, it's not the next day, it's not the next week. But not long after that, we lose habitat for human animals around the globe. Will it take six months? Will it take a year? I don't think anybody really knows, but I doubt it'll take longer than a year because of the atmospheric mixing, atmospheric mixing that occurs in a relatively short period of time. Okay. And the, you, brought up, no. you brought up brightening, which reminds me of marine cloud brightening. Peter yeah. Wadhams and folks associated with the Arctic News blog believe that this is the way we need to compensate for the aerosols dropping out of the atmosphere. We need to use marine cloud brightening, which as nearly as I can tell, is just pumping up water vapor into the atmosphere from platforms in the ocean or whatever. And 
I, you know, I, th I think that route ignores that civilization is a heat engine, as pointed out with a bunch of work at this point, dating back to 2011. And, and I, I think it ignores the fact that you got to keep doing it forever. Yeah, yeah. So that, see, that's, that's a perfect lead in. I think we've discussed global dimming enough. Now let's go into uh, geoengineering, uh, which, you know, a lot of people talk about as a, most of them as an emergency response to try to save the world at some point. But so, okay, let me just, uh, so we have the carbon uh, dioxide removal methods that would be probably very slow, take years, decades possibly. And then we have right. the solar reduction methods, the aerosol and things like that. Um, so you don't, do you think this could be enough? Um, increasing land carbon sinks, uh, carbon sequestration with biochar and things like that, air capture and storage, ocean fertilization, I've seen videos and stuff, you know, companies are like, you know, working on this. And, uh, uh, and there was a recent paper that said uh, some of the dangers of uh, geoengineering were that if doing it full on it would be dangerous. And now they're thinking that they could, you know, vary it and do uh, just a little bit of geoengineering. And so it wouldn't be quite as dramatic. So those are things that, I mean, we could start doing those immediately. And then there's the solar reduction methods. Those are the, that act very quickly. And like marine cloud albedo, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. ships that are shooting salt water up into, I did a research paper on that and actually was doing numbers on it and everything and the cost and everything. And it was actually, it was actually feasible. Now we'll talk about the risk here in a minute. Uh, and then stratospheric air zone, you know, from jets or uh, balloons or whatever, and that seems possible. Uh, mm -hmm. I, did a, I did a show on uh, geoengineering. I was talking about the Mount Pinatubo eruption and what that did. And, and so anyway, these are just uh, space-based solar reduction, space mirrors and stuff like that. I don't know. Those are kind of uh, out there. Um, but those are the things and, uh, and there are risks, obviously, like you said, uh, you have to do them forever and they don't take care of ocean, uh, acidification. So you, the oceans die anyway, and then it just, it, it discourages sustainable energy and development and all these things. So, uh, anyway, what do you think those could, if, the whole world came together and implemented these things. We had like a Manhattan project or something like that. That it just everybody. Let's say that it's a not very likely. China, India, we all come together and we say we have to save the world. Could it be done? Well, it would surprise me very much, and we aren't doing that anyway. You know. There's a bunch of people out there who know more than you and me. The, the, these surveillance 
community the the call them what you want this surveillance the community the deep state the uh, intelligence community in the United States has access to hundreds maybe even thousands of analysts who are committed to answering these questions and nobody's starting anything and that tells me a lot do I think they might work yeah they might work and they certainly are worth employing you know, when I moved to the home, when I when I opted out of the monetary system in May of 2009, it was because I realized the monetary system was driving us to extinction. It was because I realized that I could no longer contribute to the planetary level ecocide that was going on. So I moved, I established a platinum grade homestead in the wilds of New Mexico and learned how to grow all my own food and take do animal husbandry and grow plants year round and store foods preserve foods the whole thing and i was starting from a point of not knowing anything really i mean i was a lifelong academic and suddenly i'm growing food and milking goats and and creating biochar from from a, a, a kiln i had built and, you know, all these things, because I thought if we, we need to start now, and I actually wrote a book about it called Walking Away from Empire, and I described how if everybody gets on board right now, we can start doing, and it's, we're going to turn the sucker around. And imagine my surprise when exactly zero people followed suit. And, and then I realized it was, the whole thing was a joke, you know, so I pursued living off grid for about a decade and and doing all those things that I thought were the right way to live. And nobody followed suit. And that's because there's a whole bunch of people way smarter than me who have analyzed the problem and decided that they can't convince more than five people to shit in a bucket for the next year, much less to make truly radical changes in their lives and turn this thing around. That's my guess. That's what I think is going on. You know, there's a report in 2015, a synthetic paper by the United States National Academy of Sciences that pointed out that geoengineering is unlikely to be a solution and probably will make matters worse with respect to climate change. And so I, I, I think that's, I think that was and is the take-home message. I would love to think that if a bunch of people suddenly started living like I was, that the aerosol masking effect is something that we just made up and that the science and the evidence behind it is too, is lacking conservatism, is too wild. And so we can just turn this thing around. I'm more than willing. I'm more than willing to make those changes. I've already made those changes. So, yeah, that's a, that's so I'm a huge case. fan, yeah. but I don't see it happening. Yeah, and I don't see anybody in any position of power even pushing for that to happen. I don't see people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett saying, let's go get, follow me. We're going to live off grid. I know. You know, and those guys could build the kind of off-grid homestead <laughs> that would be almost like what we're living now. Right. High speed Internet and access to all the good television programs and all that crap. But I don't see them doing it. Who's going to lead? Yeah. Ted Turner is the only billionaire that done anything. 
But uh, and yeah, merely mention uh, his names gets all this hate spewed at you for all kinds of various reasons. <laughs> so, so you know, he gave a billion dollars to the United Nations. Right. One billion dollars. Exactly. And he's working on renewable energy. He has been for a long, long time. He's getting very old, and you know, nobody know. listens to him. And yet, but you mentioned I, his name. I, I know. If we had more guys like that, if, right? And I promise. One of my shows, like, what is the deal with these billionaires, man? They cannot spend that money. I can't imagine being a billionaire now. Like, why they wouldn't want to? Go into philanthropy. Anyway, right. well, and also geoengineering, I, there's another paper that it, it could mess up the water cycle, and there's going to be winners and losers that can mess up, that could be droughts and hurricanes. So you'd have to have international, global consensus, and there'll be winners and losers. So, I mean, just on a policy basis. Right. The synthetic papers uh, I've seen indicate that it's going to exacerbate the problem between the global north and the global south. The yeah. global north, those are the people who could actually implement geoengineering, and it's going to come at the expense of more droughts, more of a refugee crisis for the global south. So the poor people are going to suffer more, and the rich people might might get an extra week or an extra month on the planet. Wow. Okay, that's enough for geoengineering. Uh, so let's finally... Uh, in this, uh, the, the scientific topic about uh, just you, maybe you can explain uh, extinction and the near, uh, near right. what that means near term extinction and extinction. And I further describe uh, the heat engine because I, I've heard you say that many times and uh, I kind of don't quite get that. Uh, but, the first law of thermodynamics, and and so I'm not sure if you could explain that why that's a problem. Right. That. Right. So I mean, if it's a small heat engine, it wouldn't be a problem, right? Right. Because we had a small heat engine for a long time, and no problem. Okay. So go right. ahead. <laughs> right. So this is based on the work of Tim Garrett, who has subsequently backpedaled heavily. And now he says that he never called it a heat engine. Why did he do that? Because he was getting a lot of negative attention because I was quoting him. And for paid scientists, association with me is bad for your career. Yeah. So as a result of Garrett backing away from what he obviously said, I have downloaded some of the things he said previously to demonstrate that these are the kinds of things he said. Based on the laws of thermodynamics, he's an atmospheric scientist. He's the head of the atmospheric sciences program at the University of Utah. And so he's a physicist, and he looks at the nature of the physics in the atmosphere. So based on the laws of thermodynamics, his work concludes that no matter how it is powered, civilization, industrial civilization is a heat engine. It requires the contribution of so much heat or the generation of so much heat to maintain this set of living arrangements that it doesn't really matter if we heat the planet by industrial internal combustion engines or solar panels and and what he's doing here is he is 
taking into account how much energy is required to create a solar panel or a wind turbine or wave power. And that's a lot of heat that goes into the machines, making the machines and harvesting the coal tan to go into the cell phones. And so to maintain ever increasing growth of the energy requirements requires enormous heat at the planetary level. So that's where I get this civilization as a heat engine is directly quoting Tim Garrett, who's become the authority. And, and this is how radical the idea was in the beginning. He wrote a paper that corresponded with him. I don't think he's willing to do that anymore with me, by the way. But early on, I corresponded with him about his research. He wrote and submitted that paper in 2007 to 10 different journals. They all rejected it. Finally, it was accepted in, and published in 2009. It was sent out for peer review. The editor's name was Stephen Schneider, and he was a brave man who happened to be nearing the end of his life. So he knew he was nearing the end of his life. And so he took what I considered courageous action in accepting this paper on behalf of climatic change, which he was the editor. The paper appeared in November 2009. Immediately, there was this tremendous outcry from the academic community. Oh, my God, you're telling me the way we live is threatening the planet? That can't be right. The paper was pulled from publication immediately because of that outcry. And then about 14 months later, February 2011, the paper was finally published for real this time. But only with two responses, responses from two research groups in academia who couldn't believe that this could possibly be true. And Garrett was not allowed to respond to those comments. Generally, in the academic world, the original author, when somebody writes a comment rebutting what they have to say, they're allowed to comment to point out the errors in the logic that person B just used, the rebuttal just used. Garrett wasn't allowed to do that. So when the paper finally came out in February 2011, it has two comments in response saying, no, that can't be right. But they don't get at the science. Neither of those papers attacks the science, attacks the evidence. And there have been a couple of papers published by Garrett and colleagues subsequently. And I don't think you'll find any scientist, any physicist, anybody who actually studies the matter who would argue with civilization as a heat engine because of its it's being rooted in the laws of thermodynamics. So that's where the central issue lies. I don't know all the details. I'm not a physicist myself. So he throws these differential equations at me and my eyes sort of glaze over. But that's my best understanding of it. So I, I was just thinking of the, the first law, uh, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So I, I didn't... Anyway, but but the Earth is not a closed system. Yeah, we have energy coming in every day. It keeps us There's alive. Yeah, I thought it was kind of related to the energy budget. Right, and energy. so we're trapping we're trapping heat, and therefore increasing the amount of energy. Yeah, yeah. In our atmosphere and on Earth, so it's not a closed system. Not totally, right? I mean, it is right. 
It's kind of a closed right. system. We treat it like a closed system. We treat Earth and its atmosphere like a closed system all the time, but it's yeah. really not. There's a bunch of stuff leaking out all the time and, and, and a bunch of energy coming in every day, and some of that gets trapped. And trapping it over time has been the, the work of those greenhouse gases that has led to our demise. And that, which we don't know how it's going to... Exactly. And that, uh, now, and that's another, I, I had this thought just today, and, and I just want to run that just by it. It's kind of related to the Gaia theory. Where right. The whole Earth is an organism, and it knows what's happening. Now, I was thinking about this, that... The atmosphere doesn't seem connected to the biosphere organically, meaning it, it doesn't know that if the atmosphere doesn't emit more CO2 and maintain some level of CO2, that the biosphere will die. Oh, yeah. You know oh, yeah, they're, it's, they're interconnected. There, there's an interface are, there. But if they are connected, just like an organism will adapt if we get a, a, a virus, we, we get a fever, and, you know, it will fight it off and it will adapt. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Just yes, I understand. seems like, you know... It seems like if the if it was all one organism, that the atmosphere would know to keep the, the the greenhouse gases at a certain level to so that the biosphere could live and survive. Right. But I don't I think, think that this evidence is saying that they're not connected or something. Yeah. Or maybe it's just getting you know you're poisoning. The, the atmosphere is getting poisoned so bad that it just can't, it's too much for it, or something like that. I think you're overinterpreting Lovelock's original idea about Gaia. Yeah. I think it was a metaphor, and I think you're taking it beyond metaphor in saying that the atmosphere has knowledge and therefore wouldn't exactly. do these things. So well, I, I, think, uh, I think a lot of, uh, I think maybe just people in general think that that, that the world's going to take care of itself. Right. <laughs> well, yes. But it's, I think people in general are relatively ignorant, and a bunch of them are stupid, so I don't doubt that they believe that the Earth is going to take care of itself. A lot of people think that there's some, some magical being up in the sky who's going to take care they, of us all. And I don't see much evidence for that either. But back to that atmosphere and biosphere, it, it's clearly what you, you think they are. They they do communicate. No, that's well. Lovelock said they interact. Not. Yes. So so at the leaf surface, for example, there's all these holes in the leaves called stomates, yeah. and the atmosphere out here goes in and out of that leaf at that interface. And that's what allows carbon dioxide to be taken up by the plant and create carbon in the form of stems and roots and leaves. And 
the emission of oxygen from that plant through those same holes. It was is what maintains the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere at 18% or so, and that allows us the ability to survive here. But that that does not argue in my mind for the atmosphere knowing how much carbon dioxide the leaf can take up and knowing how much oxygen we need, right? I don't think it's that active. It will just, it, it will just, uh, I don't know what, I don't think we know what it'll do. No, I don't think we know either, but I don't think the universe particularly gives a shit. You know, I don't think that there is a caring no. aspect to the universe that wants to save us any more than it saved the, the several other species in the genus Homo that went extinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I we just, tend to think I we're pretty... This, I just watched this uh, uh, new film called First Man, and it's actually on YouTube. It's quite nice to see that because... Especially after talking to you, we may be seeing the last man, right. but it's just a, it's an acted out history of uh, of the human of man. Mm -hmm. and it's 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 quite good. I just saw it last night. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the, yeah, but, as you, nearly as we can tell, the universe is about thirteen point eight billion years old. As nearly as we can tell, our species, Homo sapiens, is a little over three hundred thousand years old. If the universe is all about us then the universe has been very patient. Oh, I know. <laughs> the Earth finally, is, finally the humans showed up. Whew, my work here is done. You said uh, the Earth is 13 billion? I thought no, it was 4.5 billion. Oh, the universe. The universe yeah. is about 13.8 billion years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Earth is about 4.5 billion. No, I totally, I mean, I totally agree with you that... Uh, you know, nobody's going to take care of us. Uh, things happened, and uh, um, yeah, it just it, it will be what it will be. Um, As George Carlin pointed out long ago, most of us have a hard time taking care of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so depending upon somebody else to take care of us might seem a little much. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so do you, do you have anything else to say about the extinction part of it, uh, the near-term extinction, and maybe just well, you know, only that. I'm a conservation biologist, and the three pillars of conservation biology are speciation, when and with what predecessors a species comes into existence, extinction, when and generally how the last individual of a species goes extinct and habitat, what we need to survive, food, water, air, and so on. So ge generally species go extinct when their habitat disappears. And I put out a short video clip within the last week or so indicating how quickly species can go extinct. And I pointed to a the San, Benedict, San Benedicto rock wren, which lived on San Benedicto Island off the coast of Mexico, went extinct in two weeks, within a span of two weeks. And it could fly. You know, so if there was other habitat to be had for it, it could fly and find it. But there wasn't. So its habitat went away. Bam, within two weeks, it's gone. So as with every other species, human animals will lose habitat at some point 
it appears that we're destroying the habitat ourselves and therefore causing our own loss of habitat. And not long after that, humans will go extinct because without the ability to grow food and maintain healthy air and clean the water, we're done. We just, we're just like other animals in that respect. Yes, we're very clever. I get that. Yes, we can clean up our own water supply via chemical means. We can manipulate biological environments to a point. And yet, several other species in the genus Homo have gone extinct. And I'll bet that they thought they were pretty clever, too. <laughs> you know, you just, and what we're doing is fouling our own nest at so many levels. And you can't do that and expect the nest to remain a very happy place for long. Yeah, I know. I see it all around me and uh, have been for years. Another video I put out recently within the last week or so was the eight distinct ways we are causing habitat to disappear for our species. I saw that. And, you yeah. know, and and again, you can't continue to tear your own house down and think it's all going to be fine. The builder next door isn't going to come up at the end of the day and fix all the damage you did to your own home. No. <laughs> Okay. Um, do you want to take a break, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about the human aspects of this? Or do you have enough time? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's your okay. call. I don't need a break, really. If I okay. take a break, well, I'll... Uh, so uh, this will be the end of uh, part one of the interview with Guy McPherson. Uh, stay tuned for part two. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, I was in a very hot and uncomfortable room during this interview, uh, as you might uh, can tell. Uh, but stay tuned for uh, part two of this interview where we talk about the human aspects of facing climate change and possibly near-term extinction and, of course, living with climate change. Uh, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye.